You're listening to The Good Faith, a podcast dedicated to applying historic Christian thinking to today's issues of faith, family, books, and culture. With your host, pastor, parent, and perpetual student of theology and culture, Chad Graham. Not everyone believes what the Christian faith believes. So how do we know that it's true? How can we know that we know what we know? It's a great old question, and it all comes down to having the right foundations. Catholic Christianity is biblical Christianity. When we use the word Catholic, what often comes to mind is the Roman Catholic Church. We also find that the creeds and most of the confessions of the Protestant churches refer to something else when they refer to the Catholic Church. The word Catholic comes from the Greek word katholikos, which means something like complete, universal. In principle, it refers to the one church that Jesus Christ founded when he said to the disciples, for example, example in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. That one church of Jesus Christ is the body of Christ, is the bride of Christ. For the early church, the church of the church fathers, the universal church undivided, the Catholic church. Scripture was the very fundamental foundation of all truth. As Daryl Bray expresses it, during the controversies of the second century, Catholic Christianity had defined a body of Scripture that afforded the only ground of proof for doctrine. But the systematization of the canonical writings, the texts of the Old and New Testament, and the continuous exegesis or explanation of individual books remain to be fully developed. And so when circumstances arose that led to the drafting of the Nicene Creed in the 4th century, we find that the gathered representatives of the whole Catholic Church explored the scriptures together and wrote what they wrote as they understood the faith according to scripture. And so we read that Christ was crucified. We believe that Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate, that he died and was buried, and that he was resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. Now this very much harkens back to what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Yet we know the Apostle's summary in 1 Corinthians 15 was not directly quoting a particular scripture, nor is the Nicene Creed quoting a particular scripture. Just as we see the echo of 1 Corinthians 15 in the passage that Christ died and was buried and was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, we also see in all of the creed echoes from scripture. Our faith simply can't stand alone. That is, we don't have an individualistic, individual's faith. We don't simply believe in ourselves and whatever we perceive to be true. That'd be pretty foolhardy. We all know that we've been deceived at various times and in various ways. But when we come to the creed, we're not looking at something 
that is one person's invention. We're looking at the combined wisdom of everyone. Now, the creed wasn't just some leaders from the church. You know, the old theory that floats around on the internet from time to time that Constantine, the Roman emperor, called together a council of people and created the scriptures and the trinity and the church whole cloth out of nothing. Oh, that's such nonsense. The church was doing very fine without him. And the council's notes are very clear. We have access to many of the records from the council, many of the memoirs of those who were at the council, including Athanasius, one of the greatest writers of the early church. And what we find instead is that what they did was they gathered together all the leaders from all areas of the church. We are told that there were 318 bishops in attendance. Now, bishops were the leaders of local areas of the church. And they discussed and sorted out what the regions, the different regions in which they lived, believed to be the fundamental truth of the scripture, that is, what they had received from the apostles. And they believed that what was expressed in the creed was that which the apostles had clearly taught as the primary message of the gospel, the primary message according to the scriptures. And so they drafted up the creed, the Nicene Creed, the faith. And they circulated it to the churches. And it was universally received by all of the churches. People, believers in Christ, received this instantaneously as the truth that they had always known. There was no surprise. They didn't go, wait, wait, what is this? This is entirely new. Are we supposed to believe this? No, no, they just said, oh yeah, of course, that's exactly what we believe, but maybe put into more fanciful language. And so they took that fanciful language, they understood that fanciful language, they embraced that fanciful language as what they had always believed. But sometimes it takes a little bit of systematization, it takes a little bit of explanation or exegesis of the scriptures to understand how its message applies to particular circumstances of the day. I have a very deep appreciation for the formularies of the Anglican Church, which understands itself to be the Apostolic Church, the Church of the Apostles, the Catholic Church, in its fullest expression, embracing the Nicene Creed, but reforming, according to the scriptures, those things which were necessary to clarify. In the ordinal, which basically discusses how leaders are appointed in the church, the beginning of the preface goes like this. It is evident. Unto all men diligently reading Holy Scripture and ancient authors that from the apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church, bishops, priests, and deacons, which officers, offices rather, were evermore had in such reverent estimation that no man might presume to execute any of them, except you were first called, tried, and examined, and known to have such qualities as are requisite for the same, and also by public prayer and with the imposition of hands were approved and admitted thereto by lawful authority." And therefore they continue to the intent that these orders may be continued and reverently used and esteemed in the Church of England, on and on and on. Now we know there are certain debates today about the specific definitions of each of the offices, but each of those terms are simply the biblical terms. The English word bishop comes from the Greek word episkopos, which meant overseer. And this word was essentially corrupted through Latin and into Anglo-Saxon and into modern English to come out as the word bishop. Then we have the word presbyter in the Greek scriptures, and this word goes into Latin and becomes prester, 
uh, and goes into Old English and then comes into Modern English and becomes known as priest or priest. So we just simply have the overseer, the episcopi, the overseers, the episcopoi, and we have the uh, presbyters or the priests, and then we have the deacons, the diaconi, uh, who are those who serve in the church. And these offices are clearly laid out in the book of Acts and in 1 Timothy and in the book of Titus. So these are the scriptural offices. And what the ordinal says is that it is evident to anyone who reads the scriptures and ancient authors. Now what they're referring here to when they say the ancient authors are those very early leaders of the church, the, the fathers of the church who actually knew the apostles. There were a whole number of men and women who knew Paul and Peter and John, and many of them have given writings to us which endure till today. Some of my favorites are Clement and the letters of Ignatius and of Barnabas, the writing known as the Didache. And what they show us is the fascinating truth that those things which are in the Nicene Creed are the faith of the early undivided Catholic Church. Now, just because they're early doesn't mean that they don't make any mistakes. Of course, these early men and women erred. But when they all agree, when there's a universal consensus on a fundamental truth of Scripture that they claim to have received from the apostles, and you really don't find any countervailing truth, and what they say agrees with the Scripture, their way of understanding it can be exceedingly helpful because they receive their way of understanding it from the apostles themselves. And it was received, their way of understanding, it was received by the people of God all of whom are endued with the Holy Spirit, who worship in all the different areas of the church, the areas of Jerusalem, the areas of Egypt, the areas of Antioch, the areas of Greece, the areas of Rome, the areas of Europe, the areas of England, that form the early church. And they all came to understand some of the same core fundamental truths. And so when we say that our faith is a scriptural faith or a biblical faith, we are not saying that our faith is based on what I personally read in the Bible when I happen to pick it up and flip through a translation today. I might be wrong, or I might be right. I don't know. But I can know that I'm right when I know that I'm led by the Holy Spirit, and I know that the Holy Spirit is guiding and leading the Church of Christ. And so when I align myself with what is universally understood by the Church of Christ and universally received by the Church of Christ, I have a great deal of of confidence. Now we know there have always been individuals who have rejected this, but those individuals have known that they've rejected the mainstream of the Christian church and they've been either uh, left the church or they've been pushed out of the church because it was understood that they were not a part of the church of Christ, right from the very beginning. So really when the creed tells us that we believe in one God, it's echoing what is in the scriptures. For example, the Shema, the great confession of Israel, found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. When we see that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, we're simply seeing what is echoed in the scripture, where the Apostle Paul, for example, in Romans 10.9, says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we shall be saved. When we say that we believe in the Holy Spirit, we are echoing what the Lord Jesus told us to do when he said, I will send to you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. But while all these things are scriptural, how they fit together is quite a challenge. 
What does it mean that we believe in one God, but Jesus says, I and, and the Father are one? What do we do when Thomas says to Jesus, My Lord and my God, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him, but accepts this worship? What do we do when we're told to baptize new believers in the name singular, the one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? This, of course, was the question that the early church faced, and they say that according to Scripture, we understand the Trinity. Now, in particular, in this point of the Creed, it's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it is saying that we understand this to be true according to the Scriptures. We are saying that we understand that God took on flesh. He was incarnate, in flesh, and became a human being like any one of us, except without sin. He lived as a baby. He cried for milk, for comfort, to get his diapers changed. He grew up. He grew in stature and wisdom and in favor with both God and men. But the one, this child was one Jesus Christ. One person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And together, the man Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ, was able to redeem us by his death and resurrection. He brought us hope through his death and resurrection. And this was in accordance with the scriptures because the whole of the scriptures, as Jesus said, testify of me. And yet there's no one scripture that says Jesus Christ is going to die and then be raised in three particular days. Rather, it is echoes and developments of the great themes of scripture, just like the Trinity. So that Christ predicted his resurrection which was ordained from the beginning, prophesied in Hosea, and anticipated in the return of Jonah. The resurrection, Athanasius says, frees us from death. Our deliverance is commemorated in every cockcrow, every new day, every spring. And for all that, it was not foreseen before it was accomplished. This is really a great lesson to us. We need to make sure that our faith is according to Scripture. But when we say that, we ought to mean and say that our faith is that faith which is evident unto all who diligently read the Holy Scriptures and the ancient authors, and know that from the Apostles' time it has been understood that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, and that on the third day he was raised again in accordance with the Scriptures. Thank you for listening to the Good Faith Podcast. For more episodes, related articles, and additional information, visit chadwgraham.com. For resources related to the topics in this podcast, or for more episodes, visit chadwgraham.com. There you'll find the Good Faith site, where I have uh, other writings in which I explore various things in faith, family, books, and culture in both audio and article resources. My quotations from the early church fathers come from the Ancient Christian Doctrine series, edited by Gerald Bray and Thomas Oden. The Nicene Creed is readily available online.
The music that we have been enjoying in the background comes from the Tudor Consort and their track Curia Laison, which is protected under a Creative Commons copyright license, which allows use with attribution.